Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Abigail Hing Wen. Abigail is a New York Times bestselling author, rare woman in tech leader specializing in artificial intelligence, a new filmmaker, as well as a wife and mother of two. She writes and speaks about tech, AI ethics, women's leadership, implicit bias, equity, and transforming culture. Abigail penned the New York Times bestselling novel, Love Boat Taipei. She is executive producing the book-to-film adaptation with Ace Entertainment, creators of the Netflix franchise, To All the Boys I've Loved Before. She and her work have been profiled in Entertainment Weekly, Forbes, Fortune, Cosmopolitan, NBC News, Bloomberg, Google Talk, and The World Journal, among others. Abigail holds a BA from Harvard, where she took coursework in film, ethnic studies, and government. She also holds a JD from Columbia and MFA in writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts. Abigail, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to speak with you guys again. Of course. I mean, we've been watching you since like almost day one, right? And the remarkable progress that you've been making, your accomplishment, we love it, you know? But for, for a lot of listeners, and we've grown substantially since the first time we met too, so a lot of listeners uh, have heard of your book, but they haven't heard much about yourself. So would you like to walk us through like, what was your upbringing like and how did you got the inspiration to write these two books? Yeah, well, thank you. And, and thank you so much again to Asian Hustle Network. As I was saying before we started the podcast, so you guys have been there from the beginning and I'm grateful for all the support. And I've also been really excited to watch the growth of your network and how much you've um, your community has been helping each other. So. Um, so for myself, I grew up in Ohio. I, my family immigrated from the Philippines and Indonesia. My dad actually immigrated when he was 13 from Indonesia. And so he grew up partly in the United States. He went to high school in Michigan and then college at the University of Michigan. And my mom, being from the Philippines, um, English was actually one of her first languages, along with the local language and, and her, her native tongue, Fujian. Um, she, she came over for college. And so my parents, were I found, were a bit more Americanized than probably the average Asian American that I ran into around Ohio. Um, and I think, you know, in retrospect, when I look back, I think that probably gave me a little bit more freedom to explore a bit more um, outside some of the traditional professions that a lot of my peers were going into. Um, I, I enjoyed growing up in Ohio, but it was definitely, you know, a challenge in that I was one of the few minorities there. So when I went to Harvard and then when I went to on Love Boat, which I'll talk about in a bit, um, that was one of the few times that I actually was in a community of other Asian Americans and, and met Asians who were really proud of their heritage. Um, and those were formative years for me. So I think that experience is something I tried to capture in Love Boat Taipei, which is the story of a girl from Ohio who um, is trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life, whether it you know, be dancing or music or sorry, dancing or um, medicine. And she gets shipped off to Taiwan by her parents to learn language and culture. And there she has a time of freedom to just really explore what is it that she really wants to do? Who is she as a girl between cultures? And what does it mean to honor her parents while still pursuing her passions? So that ended up becoming Love Boat Taipei. That's, I, I love that story a lot. And I want to dig deep into your, your time in Ohio. You know, like, I, I want to understand, like, have... Like growing up in Ohio, like how aware were you of your like ethnicity 
and how much of that factor into like creating this this love book uh, love creating right yeah it's a really great question i think because i was one of the few minorities um, I was noticed a lot. And that's something actually my character talks a bit about. She, she similar to me, was not comfortable with that. So, you know, we, we'd be at the mall walking around and people would point out, point to us and say, oh, look, Chinese people. Or um, they would think that my brother, sister, and I look, all look the same. So they thought we were all twins. Um, you know, and, and, and there were kind people who were curious and there were not so kind people who would make up Chinese languages at us and talk about chop suey and, you know, those things. And, and so I think I was forced to be aware of my ethnicity. I was forced from the very beginning of time to just be aware I was different than the community I was growing up in. Um, and so I think that caused me to do a lot of just introspection and, and trying to figure out like, who I was. Um, but my parents did take me back to Asia to visit. So my mom, as I mentioned, being from the Philippines, we would go back almost every summer and just spend time with their family in Manila. And they were Chinese diaspora in Manila. And so them being an immigrant community, they were also really interested in their heritage and would talk a lot about history um, in China and, and like kind of the immigrant journey of my family. And so I think I've always been interested in the stories and wanting that sense of connection back to my roots. That's amazing. So Brian and I both have personally read uh, Love Bo Taipei, and I was just in love with the story. And I remember the first time that we met you, I think it was at the Modernist in San Francisco, right. and you were doing a little event um, to launch the book. Um, and that was the first time we ever met you. And that was when, you know, Brian and I were like, oh, let's let's read this book. Like, it seems so interesting. And, you know, we now knowing you, you know, we, we know that you are in tech, uh, you were working in venture capital funding, um, you just had so many different roles. And I feel like when I was reading the book, it really reminded me of Everett, which is the main character in the book. Um, I know we had this conversation before, but can you tell us a little bit about like your journey working in tech and in venture capital funding and um, how that kind of relates to Everett's story? Because I remember you mentioning that Everett was kind of like a symbolization of, of yourself, you know, just trying to, you know, get your foot into the world, trying to know like what you wanted to do um, and what your calling was. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you for the question. Uh, so I think that Ever story might parallel more of my entry into the law. So my story there is I was, um, you know, I studied government at Harvard International Relations and I was thinking about being a law professor. I, I went to law school. I worked on Capitol Hill and I clerked for a judge on the D.C. Circuit and I'd written an article um, for the Law Review at Columbia. So I'd kind of done all the things I needed to do to be a law professor, but I just couldn't bring myself to take the final step, which was to write an article. And, you know, and then basically I would use that article to, to go out on the market. And I felt like, you know, coming for me, five people would read this article, it moved the needle for nobody. But I had an idea for a fantasy novel in my head at the time. And my husband was super encouraging. He's like, why don't you just try it? And so when I was pregnant with my second kid, I, you know, I had maternity leave. And so I just started writing this novel and it just came pouring out of me. And I didn't know at the time that I was a creative person. Um, but that was kind of, I would say that was the first choice I made not to be a law professor. And then the second choice was when I moved out to California, my husband um, is in tech. So he, he works at Google and my, both my sons are actually AI programmers in addition to being creatives. Um, so, you know, tech, I think is just like, it's all around me. Um, but I decided to go back to law because I hadn't really finished my training. So I, I went to a law firm, but I very quickly was, was recruited into venture capital, um, in a general counsel role for Intel capital. So those are, those jobs are pretty rare and I was excited to do that and just kind of learn the whole venture space. Um, but the whole time I was doing that, I was also simultaneously writing my novel. Actually, I wrote five novels on the way to Love Boat Taipei. Mm. Love Boat Taipei was the first to actually get published. The others, I couldn't get them through the gate. So I think I say that Everwong got to 
think about her decision earlier. So the story is about her. Um, her parents want her to be a doctor because her father was a doctor, but he didn't get to practice in the United States because he couldn't fulfill the very expensive residency requirements, which actually does happen to immigrants. Um, so Ever has always felt this pressure to live out her father's dreams because she really does feel the sacrifices that they made for her um, and the ways that they've been treated in Ohio um, by you know the, the group of people that were not so kind about them being being different. Um, and at the same time, she has this passion for dance. And so I think that was me too. I I'd kind of been on this track into law and kind of like that more traditional stable path. My family are in the Philippines and, and my dad's from, they're all business people. And so writing and being creative, that really wasn't in the equation. Um, so I think I didn't, I didn't have the choice to choose for many years until Lobo Taipei um, made it through the gates. And so, so now I actually, I have just recently left my job in tech um, to focus full-time on the content creation, but the tech is still there. It's still part of who I am. And actually my second book, Love Boat Reunion follows two of the fan favorite characters from book one and my girl, Sophie Ha, who you you know, having read the book, um, is extremely girly. Um, she was she's on Love Boat to get married and, you know, and find a rich husband. And so in book two, she's kind of swung the opposite extreme where she's sworn off boys and she's going to double down on being an artificial intelligence major at Dartmouth. And then, you know, so there's a bunch of disasters that come through that process as she figures out who she is and how to be a, a girl in tech. That's amazing. We cannot wait to hear the story and read the story. I just wanted to say, you know, you not thinking that you had a creative side and then you kind of like just going with the flow and writing this book and realizing, oh, I do have a creative side. You know, it's just so <laughs> inspiring because I feel like a lot of people, they grow, grow up thinking like, oh, if they're not creative um, in the future, they're probably not going to be creative. But in your instance, you know, you found this creative outlet, you found this creative side to you. So I think that's just incredibly inspiring. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I had I had a lot of help along the way for sure. Yeah, I, I like that a lot too, and it's it's really inspirational because you know you're showing your creative side, you're showing what's possible. But I'm kind of curious too, like what made the difference for Love Boat Taipei to make it through the gates compared to your first five books, and how much time effort did like did you have to spend in like all five books to determine what was the winning formula? Did you have other writers, agents influence your creative process? Or was this all by, by yourself and you're like, okay, this is what I I want to push through and how what was the process like? Yeah. So I have really wonderful creative partners that I've been writing and exchanging work with for many years. So I.W. Gregorio, Stacey Lee, um, Stephanie Garber, Saba Tahir, and Sonia Mukherjee, um, and Kelly Lo Gilbert. And I've they were all published before I was. It was like, I joke, it's like being a bridesmaid and not for the bride. Like they had multiple books out and I still wasn't getting published. I mentioned I had those five books and I was like, why do you guys still read my stuff? Right. I just, I just kept getting rejected. I came close at two publishing houses, um, but it, it was before Crazy Rich Asians had really opened up the market for Asian American works and um, the marketing teams, like they didn't know how to position my work. And so I, you know, I had a lot of people along the way say, why don't you self-publish or, or at least, you know, I also had really big agents, so they would only shop to the big editors of the big houses. And so they're like, well, why don't you try a small, you know, maybe a smaller agent or an up and coming editor, or, um, you know, even one of the, the smaller houses that get behind their books. And I think there was a part of me that was like, you know, maybe I'm just not ready. Um, maybe my work's not at the level that it needs to be. And so I think if Love Boat Taipei had not sold, I might have considered one of those alternative routes because I did feel like that pretty strongly about Love Boat Taipei, um, but it did sell. And I think in retrospect, I'm glad that I waited, um, even though it was really painful for those many years. I'm glad I waited 
because it came out really strongly and that helped to set up the rest of my book. So I've got the second book coming out in January and I have a third book that hasn't been announced yet coming out with HarperCollins in 2023. And then I have, I have multiple books that have been proposed to me from other places. And so I feel like I have a lot of momentum now, um, but it's definitely not an overnight success. It was 12 years of writing four buried books and Love Boat Taipei. I think I told you guys before um, it was rejected at version 26 and I had to rewrite the whole thing from the ground up. So mm-hmm. the only reason, the only way I made it through that was again, my critique partners that I named, they, they came around me and they said, your stuff is good. There's some reason why you're not getting through the gates. You just have to keep going. And they gave me good advice for how to fix the book. And this was born. Wow. That's amazing. Um, you know, it really does take a lot of patience and the right people around you to make sure that you can get, you know, your work um, and book out the door. And I, I really want to know, because, you know, if there's anyone who has tried to write a book, they would know that, you know, one, it's extremely hard. You know, you're trying to capture the right audience, but then it's a whole nother level when you're trying to write an Asian related book, right? Because you really have to, if you're going to get it in the bookstores or if you want it to get it to to the broader audience, just like outside of the Asian community, you really have to make sure that you, you know, communicate about the Asian culture inside the book, but at the same time, you reel in the people who are not Asian as well, right? And I think you captured a really, really good essence in Love Boat Taipei because it can be relatable to so many people, Asians and non-Asians, right? And I want to know from your perspective, because you talked a lot about like positioning your book, making sure you have the right positioning, right? Did you ever come across, you know, complications about like, okay, how do I make sure that I communicate about Asian culture very clearly in this book? But at the same time, I want to broaden my my audience to communities that are non-Asian as well. And then how were you able to do that? Yeah, that's a really great question. I don't know that I have the perfect answer yet. Um, I think with Lobo Taipei, one of the one of the unique things about it, it has 30 different Asian American characters. Mm-hmm. And they're all on this trip together. And when you have that many Asian American characters, then in some ways, like their ethnicity, it's still a part of who they are collectively, but it's also not really as relevant because you get to know the individual characters. So Ever Wong wants to be a dancer. Um, and she's a, she's a leader and she's kind and forgiving to her friends. Um, Rick Wu, who is Boy Wonder and he's been profiled in all the major papers, is like the bane of her existence. But he's like he seems like, you know, the Wonder Boy, but he actually has a, a girlfriend suffering from depression and he feels like he needs to carry the weight of that. And, and Sophie Ha, as I mentioned, um, comes from a really conservative family that just wanted her to get married. Um, but she's brilliant and she has to come to realize that that's like, that's part of who she is. And she's so much more than what her, her family thinks she is. And, and then Xavier has a secret. He can't, he's dyslexic. He can't read, even though he's surrounded by all these really high powered, um, uh, you know, students around him. And so each of them, I think have, is like, they're a real person, right? They're unique. Right. And because they have all these different facets to them, I think it just ended up being more relatable. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like my editor at HarperCollins is, um, is Italian American. And she told me like, she felt like Ever's family was like her family. So I, I definitely, and I heard that from multiple, um, other cultures, like readers of different races that just really related, I think just to that, that part of it as well. So I think just the authenticity of being themselves, um, and then maybe that, that uniqueness of just having so many different Asian Americans in it. Yeah, I love that. I got chills just hearing that because it is definitely very relatable. And as soon as you relate to the main character, you you, you get reeled and you're like, I need to keep reading. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I, I kind of want to 
position the podcast not to get too many spoilers to encourage more people to read the book. So you guys are listening, please, you know, support Abigail, pick up a copy of Lobo Tepe. It's an excellent book and we're excited for um, book two as well. So I'm, I'm kind of curious too. I know that you are adapting your book into a movie production, right? What is that entire process like? Like, are you working the film director? How, do you have any say in which scenes are crucial or how involved are you with the process? Because we're excited to hear more about that and see it on the big screen. Yeah, I'm excited too. It's been really fun. So I'm working, as you mentioned, with Ace Entertainment. They're um, the creators of the To All the Boys I've Loved Before franchise. And part of the reason why we chose to go with them is because they did just such an amazing job with Jenny Han's work. And, you know, at a time that... Um, a lot of Asian characters were being whitewashed in Hollywood. They're like, no, we feel really strongly that you should keep your Korean American main character. And so, you know, here I have my love type with my 30 Asian American characters. And they, they said, what is the most important thing to you? And I said that, like, I want these characters to, to all to be there. I want to showcase the diversity within our community. So it's been really fun. We've worked with um, really incredible writers on the script. I, I can't say who they are yet, um, but there's like, you know, I think that that moment I first got the draft of the script was incredibly surreal. Like, I, I think I don't even know how to describe it. Like these characters that I made up in my head that I wrote about in this book, um, somebody else basically is like moving them around and making them do things and having them like, you know, talk and, and have dialogue that is like them. It's really authentically them. But I didn't write it. Right. So, um, you know, so I'm involved in like kind of we we talked about like the overall structure um, they, you know, they followed the structure of the novel because they felt the novel itself was already um, really well done in terms of like a three-act structure that's typical for film. Um, we talked about which characters were important to keep in in the story and like which were more ancillary and then which characters are going to be in the second book. Um, so, you know, those types of the things we played around with um, and then like leaning into the scenery, Taiwan. Like, so I think one of the criticisms of the novel is that there wasn't enough of Taiwan. Like there, we want to see more Taiwan and I wish I could have put more in. I think I had word count issues. Um, so with, for the film, then that's an opportunity to actually showcase more of the city. And, you know, it's, it's really intended to be seen. Um, you can't, you can only do so much with words um, like describing like Taipei 101 and the skyline and the food. And um, so I'm excited to see those scenes. Um, and then the other element we've talked about is just leaning into dance elements and really Kind of bringing that out more ever as a dancer and so there and the book itself is set up with five major dance sequences and so um it's exciting to just think about how that'll, that'll play as well but i think seeing the script for me and just also watching the evolution of the script has been incredibly rewarding and i'm really excited for just you know moving forward that's very exciting. I mean, personally, when I'm reading the book, I already feel like I'm actually in the story. So I can't imagine just, you know, watching the movie, um, just actually like feeling every every scene and every moment. Um, I do want to know, you know, I'm sure there are, you know, very many differences between the book and the movie. Um, from your perspective, how do you want your readers to um, take away, what do you want your readers to take away from the book and how is that different from how you want the viewers to see the movie and what, they, what they're trying to take out of the movie as well? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are some things that are the same. Like one, for me, it took me many, many years till I wrote an Asian American main character because mm -hmm. I didn't know that an Asian American girl could be the main character. And that was actually true. There was um, a story I've, I've shared in the industry 15 years ago. Someone had written a story with an Asian American boy character and the publishing industry picked it up. But they said, you have to change him to a, a white character. And she did. She said it was like taking a spoon to her heart, but it's really hard to get a book deal. And she did it. You know, I think she's gone on to subsequently publish other books. 
Um, and this is still happening in Hollywood. Like even as of two years ago, people um, were asked to whitewash their characters, Asian American characters. It's actually in someone's contract. Um, and so I think that's the biggest one for the book. Like, yes, you can be the main character of your life. Um, and you have so much to bring to the table. Like, I think I, it's one of the rewarding things of being an author is I get to see the quotes that resonate with people. And um, one of my favorites that, that people quote is, we are powerful. And that is something that ever comes to realize at the end, like we are powerful. Um, and I think that's true for the movie too. Like I, lo I would love people to see like, you know, Asian Americans as well as non-Asian Americans, like, yes, like this is, this is us. We are human. Um, we are multifaceted and we are as much a part of the society as, as everyone else. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'm just asking the top of my mind that I, I remember last time we had a conversation, especially on our uh, Facebook live. So I'm kind of curious when you're writing more of the passionate scenes inside your book, did you <laughs> talk to your husband about it first? Or <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> All right. So we need to tell the audience in case you have young listeners. Um, Harper Collins, I think, said it was 13 plus. Um, I saw some book reviews that said it was 14 plus and someone told me for Taiwanese, Asian Americans, it's 15 plus. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know if I talked to my husband about them, honestly. He has read the book. He's very supportive. Um, but, you know, I think for me, like, those scenes are also just, it's more the same, like, the same theme of, like, we are human. Like, we fall in love. We get our hearts broken. We make stupid decisions about relationships. We recover. And we make better ones afterwards, right? And so Ever makes some bad choices. And then she makes some good ones. And I think all of that is to show, like, the reality of that. It's real. I love it. I love those passionate scenes. So do you guys need to pick up a copy and read it? Because I was just feeling so hot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other piece of that is, you know, wanting, I mean, I have, I have sons, I have a husband, I have, my husband has amazing front guy friends. And I, I did feel like Asian American men in particular were underrepresented in Hollywood and as main characters. And so um, I remember hearing like a bunch of my guys, like the guy never kisses the girl on screen, right? Like, was it Chow Yun-Fat? Like he's, he's, and he's actually been to a lot of shows, but he doesn't kiss the girl. Right? And so I think that was part of it too. Like, you yeah. know, I knew a lot of really, really romantic Asian American boys. And so that's just, again, the reality of our community. Yeah, absolutely. So Abigail, we know you work extremely hard, you know, writing a book, it really goes down to the nitty gritty of the author actually doing their own marketing as well, right? I think a lot of authors go into writing a book and thinking if they go with a publishing company, they think that the publishing company will do all the work, right? But we know that you did so much work and we we had a lot of other people, you know, talk to us about how much work you put into it. You actually went out there and did your own events, did your own shows, did your own marketing. And it really does take all that work for, for the book to be so big. I want to know like what your experience was like for that process, just like doing all of that nitty gritty work and doing the marketing yourself. Um, and what you kind of learned out of that process, because I don't think a lot of other authors who write a book, they realize how much work goes into it. Yeah, it's incredible amounts of work and it takes a community. I could not do it by myself. So when people ask me, like, how did your book hit the New York Times list, especially as an Asian American novel? Um, I say that there's three reasons. One is HarperCollins was really behind it. And, you know, I, I, I owe that to um, you know, the book sold at auction. So we had a bidding war and we were able to get top dollar for it. And for us, the top dollar meant that it was a sign of commitment from the house that they would back this book. Um, and that was actually really important to set it up that way. Um, you know, we definitely hear of stories of people who are ignored by their publishing houses or they fall through the cracks or they're forgotten. And so I think that was really the most important 
first up initially, and then Barnes and Noble picked up the book as their young adult book club pick, and that was huge. That was a really huge hit, um, and that meant that in February, everyone around the country at Barnes and Noble was reading Love Book Taipei and discussing that at Barnes and Noble, and they had these like um, uh, book club questions that were developed, which I've put on my website, which is just my name, abigailhangwin.com. Um, and they held events and they were posting it on all their social media channels. And they continue to be super supportive of the book today. Like they're constantly like, they're still tagging it. Cause right now the hardback is actually where the paperback is about to launch. It's going to launch on August 24th. So the hardback will phase out. And so they're actually putting it out on their like sales tables now. And so they're tagging me on their, their posts and Someone else sent me a photo of my book next to Obama's book behind the counter a couple months ago, right? And so, like, mm-hmm. that was incredible real estate, incredible exposure. And I'm so grateful to them for backing the book so strongly. Um, and then the third is the Asian American community. And they really came out for this book. You guys came out for this book and really helped to get the word out, like, how important it is to have representation Um And I was, I was really overwhelmed by that. So, like, all these events around the country that I ended up going on, those were... Like, like some of them were organized by Harper from an official Harper tour. And then a lot of them were just organized by the Asian American community. And I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful. Amazing. Yeah. We're, and we're honored to, because we hosted an event with Asian Hustle Network with Abigail to mm-hmm. talk about Love Go Taipei. Yep. So, you know, it, it just goes to show how much work you put into it, doing your own outreach and, and making sure, you know, the Asian community um, was able to back this book as well. It's, it's, it's really inspiring. Yeah, it's definitely very inspiring. I mean, it's a lot, a lot of work. So flowers to you, flowers to your team for making this happen. And I love the fact that we get the opportunity to interview you each time you come up with, with a new book, you know. So <laughs> let's quickly talk about book number two. And what was the difference between writing this book and the last book? You know, like what kind of inspiration did you have? Did you have to go travel some more? Did you have to go meet more people to get character development ideas and you watch other movies, you read other books, you self-reflect. What was the process like for you? Yes. Yes. All of the above. So, um, so as I mentioned, book one, I wrote 26 drafts and then I had to scrap the whole thing. And those 26 drafts are actually written from four points of view, plus a little fifth from another character, but it was, it was my main characters, Rick, Sophie, Ever, and Xavier. And I, the problem with that was I couldn't fit it all into one book. It was 120,000 words and it was just too shallow. And so when I scrapped it, I redid the whole thing from Ever's point of view, first person present. Um, so I had a lot of leftover scenes and I always knew that I wanted to follow Xavier in particular. Um, he's a fan favorite. I've, I think there are some people who are angry with the way book one ended and without spoiling things. And I, I keep seeing these signs, justice for so-and-so, um, you know, which I, I love. I do love the debates. Um, but I, I did want to follow the story because I felt like we didn't get to have the whole thing fit into book one. So book two follows both Xavier and Sophie, and they're on the cover of, of it. Um, they It begins actually at the talent show at the auction where Sophie is auctioning off Xavier's work. And there's a surprise that happens there. Um, and then, we, then we're at the airport and we're everyone's saying goodbye to each other at the end of Love Boat at the end of this program. And then... Then there's a new adventure that begins. So Sophie, as I mentioned, is sworn off boys. She's trying to um, be the best like CS major as she can at Dartmouth. And Xavier just wants to get his trust fund. So he actually gets his trust fund when he turns 18. His mother passed away when he was 12 and set up this trust fund for him. And he's he's ready to get out from under his father's thumb. It's not about the money for him. It's about freedom. But his father pulls the rug out from him at the last minute. And now he's stuck repeating his senior year of high school, which is like probably the worst possible thing that could happen to this kid. So... From there, Sophie and Xavier basically have to team up to try to take control of their own futures. And they go on another journey. They, end up, they find themselves on a love boat reunion back to Taiwan during the Moon Festival. 
So I ended up traveling myself to Taiwan during the Moon Festival to do my research. And I, I was able to go. I got a special visa from the government. Um, and I did quarantine for 14 days. I did an interview actually with ABC7 to talk about what that process was like of just going out there and getting through like all of that. Um, but it was really important to be there because I really connected with my characters while I was there. And that was true for book one, too. I did I did an in-person research trip. Um, but I, you know, I, I realized where Xavier lives. I realized that he would go look for his mother's grave. Well, not look for it, but actually go visit his mother's grave. Um, and, and same with Sophie. Like I, I kind of found the things that I knew she would connect with. And I also magically ran into um, the most important like person that she would have met on her particular mission, which I don't want to spoil. But I, it, I, I randomly ran into them at an event and I did a lot of research around that. So I will talk about it after the book comes out. <laughs> Amazing. That's so awesome that, you know, you actually went to Taiwan to find inspiration. I think that's really important for you to actually be in that creative outlet and really immerse yourself in that environment. Um, for those of you know our, our, our audience who doesn't know, Love Ho Taipei is actually based on an actual event in Taiwan. Is that correct, Abigail? That's right. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because before I had read your book, I didn't even know that there was an event in Taiwan. Um, so I want to know a little bit more about that and how likely are the scenes in your book um, or how likely are they to happen at the actual event? Right. right. So Love Boat is the nickname for an actual summer program in Taiwan that has been around since the 1960s. Parents have been sending their kids there to learn language and culture like Ever Wong, but also in many cases to find a spouse, especially like in the 60s. There was a lot less interracial dating. It was it was less uh, socially acceptable. And so I think parents, it really mattered to like go here and, and find someone that you could potentially get married to. So that's how it got its nickname, Love Boat. Um, the program is kind of known for a lot of debauchery, um, a lot of drinking, heavy partying, sneaking out clubbing. And so there are definitely definitely quintessential stories that have come out of the program over time. So the sneaking out clubbing, drinking the snake blood sake, um, taking glamour shots was a thing. And so so those those are are kind of set pieces in the novel that ever gets to go through. Um, and and then I, you know, there's also a Korean love boat and I, I would hear stories about that program. And so there is like one little little story from book one that came from the Korean love boat. It was actually the girl washing the sheets in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I just, I kind of heard, heard stories. You go to parties and you run into people who had been on love boat and it was kind of this little secret and you'd laugh and you're like, oh my God, you went on love boat too. And you're kind of embarrassed about it, but also it was really this crazy experience that no one knew about. And so I think that was partly what I was trying to capture with this one. And it's like, oh, we, this is like a different side of Asian Americans that I think we didn't really see. It's like, the party Asian Americans, I guess, but they're also really yeah. high performing and, and good people. So, <laughs> yeah, I think that's what makes, what makes it so relatable too, right? Because if you've been on the, at the event and you find other people who've been at the event as well, it's like an automatic connection there. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And the Love Boat alum are incredible. That's partly why I wanted to write a reunion story. Cause I feel like I got to have a little bit of a reunion with other Love Boat alum in and my book tour, like every every place I went to on my my tour, people came out of the woodwork like, oh, I was on the boat too. <laughs> it's just really, and they're doing incredible things. I, I think the benefit of going on a program like this, and I hope I capture that benefit in the story for my readers, is I think we that rebellion was actually really important um, as leadership development. So, you know, especially in the United States, um, in Silicon Valley, we look for the disruptors, the people who are going to just like exactly what Asian Hustle Network is doing. You know, we disrupt industries and and I think on Love Boat, that's what we did. We just, like, we rebelled against everything in a safe environment and learned, like, okay, there are consequences sometimes. Sometimes it's, you shouldn't go too far, but sometimes it's actually okay to not 
obey the rules. I think right now it's like we kind of view you as a pioneer in this space, right? Because when you look around the bookstores, you don't see that much Asian representations stories yet. I think on most we see your books and we see the crazy rich Asian books, you know? <laughs> so it's like, so being one of the pioneers, what kind of setbacks um, have you faced being one of the first ones to publish a book like this, you know? And how have you been trailblazing the blade, the, the road for more other Asian writers to kind of follow your path and have any of them reach out to you? Yeah, so I, I am seeing a lot more Asian American stories coming out now, which is wonderful. They're like they're usually set in the States with an Asian American protagonist. And, you know, as I mentioned, my critique partners are all writing books. So Stacey Lee, for example, has um, five five books now where she writes she writes historical Asian American books where the, the protagonist is set as an Asian American girl in the past. So she has one that's like the Wild West. Um, she actually has one called The Downstairs Girl that just hit the New York Times list set in Atlanta, Georgia. So during the the, the, um, the shootings out there, um, the book, I think, picked up some steam and people started to realize like, oh, hey, this is out there. Um, it got picked up by Reese Witherspoon's book club. So that was really awesome. And I'm just, I'm so like proud of my critique partners and, and what they're doing. Um, and there are others that are coming through the ranks for sure, which is incredibly exciting. Um, and I think that's really important because again, this, the theme of diversity within our community, like we need many, many voices because we have many, many stories. Um, but it is still hard. And I'm glad you asked because I think sometimes people look and like, oh, your book is really successful. It's a New York Times. You don't need help anymore. But actually, no, it's still hard. Um, book two needs to do well. Um, like you're, you're, you, you always want, the books always need to be doing well because that's what the publishing community is looking for, right? Like, okay, like are people still interested in this stuff? Is there still a market or was it a fad? Um, I, you know, some of the other challenges is like, for example, the New York Times list is about um, it actually heavily weights independent bookstores, but it turns out Asian Americans don't tend to buy in independent bookstores, but they should. You know, I think we we all want to support our local communities, but I think that's something they just didn't necessarily think about. They're they're often on Amazon, um, so that it makes it harder for an Asian American book to hit the list. Um, but you know, so what I say to that is, please support your local bookstores, your local independent bookstores, and, and Barnes and Noble as well. Um, and then another aspect that's hard is Goodreads, for example. Goodreads is a really important engine for driving organic book. Um, growth, book sales, um, but Asian Americans don't tend to rate. Like I would get a lot of direct messages. I loved your book, but then they don't, they're afraid to post on, on, um, online. So and like what you guys are doing is incredibly out there. It's like really vocal, it's very visible. And like, that's, we need more of that, right? We need more people saying, like kind of putting their stamp of approval on things and saying, go forth and, and help. Right. So, um, I think those are just some cultural aspects that don't work with the industry that we have to work through over time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, Abigail, we know that you wrote a third novel as well, and you're working on a fourth novel. Um, on top of that, you are producing a girls in tech animated series. You're just working on a lot of stuff, and we're so excited to just learn more about it. Um, tell us more about it. Tell us more about your third and fourth novel and the animated series. Yeah, so the third novel, um, as much as it's not been announced yet, but it is, it's a graphic novel, and it's about intergenerational cognitive differences. Um, I can't say much more about it, but I'm like I mentioned, it's, it should be coming out fall of 2023, and we're looking for an illustrator now. Um, and then I have a new project, a new novel that I'm super excited about. It's, um, again, I can't say a lot about it, but it, it kind of draws on my background with international relations and my, my, my upbringing being in a very multiracial family in the sense that my dad was from Indonesia, my mom was from the Philippines, my grandparents are from China, and then I'm, I'm American. Um, so it kind of brings a lot of that together 
international relations. It's a it's kind of a big high concept story, and it's probably going to be like a duology or a trilogy. Um, and that one, I actually just got inspired to write it in May. It's a completely brand new thing, and it just poured out of me. Like I've, I'm on a hundred, I'm one hundred thirty pages now. Um, and it was kind of an example to me, like when you have that idea, it really will just kind of go. Um, but, and then I have, I have a short story that's coming out with Macmillan in January of next year as well. It's called the idiom algorithm. It's about an Asian American guy in Silicon Valley whose girlfriend gets kidnapped and he builds an algorithm to find her. So it's a short and sweet, like 8,000 words. Um, but I, I'm excited for that one to come out as well. Um, and then they have other novels that are kind of in the works that haven't been announced yet. Then on the film side, that has been really exciting. So I think Love Boat Taipei opened up a lot of doors for me in Hollywood, which was not expected at all. Um, I ended up talking with, I, I, I say I've talked with all of Asian American Hollywood now, just, you know, which especially I think on the producer side. Um, and I had a lot of producers just reaching out and saying, what else do you have? And at the time I didn't really have anything. Now I have more things in the pipeline. Um, so I started, you know, pitching like my critique partners books. And, um, so I, not all that's been announced yet either, but I am, I'm actually developing, um, a new project. I've attached a couple really exciting producers, um, that are working on it with me. Um, but then the one I can talk about is like the Ella, the engineer series. So it's an animated series based on a comic book series by Deloitte. Um, that's to encourage girls to go into STEM and the idea is like you kind of expose them early on to, um, you know, to a, basically seeing, seeing themselves on the screen, like girls that are doing techie things that Ella is an engineer. Some of her other friends are um, robotic roboticists and, you know, there's a, there's a um, boy characters as well. And that one, I brought in the university of California, Berkeley. Um, so they're, they're helping to develop kind of the science behind it and the Gina Davis media Institute, which is really focused on like the representation of girls in media. And so I'm excited about that one. And, you know, I think all these projects are still really early staged and high risk. So they come with like a level of uncertainty, but it's also really exciting just to be able to work on projects that I feel deeply passionate about. And, and that's kind of become my metric for what I do and how I spend my time. It's like, what do I care about and what do I want to try to, to really bring forward and bring to the light? Love it. We can't wait for all of these upcoming projects. And Oh my gosh, you mentioned the the boy created an algorithm to find the girl. I really want to <laughs> read more about that. That's really interesting. That, that's exactly how I found Maggie. <laughs> Is the boy based on me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> awesome. Well, Abigail, we have one last question for you. And that is, if you could give one advice to, let's say, a young leader, let's say an Everwong who's trying to find her calling in life, trying to find her own identity, what would that one advice be? Mm, such a great question. And only one. That's hard, right? Um, only one. Yes. <laughs> you could give two if you want. No, I think, I think explore. Give yourself the freedom to explore and imagine yourself in different roles because you don't really know it'll stick. Um, and it's okay if you haven't, if you don't have the opportunities to explore. Like, I just saw this really hilarious post on Facebook where someone is watching the Olympics and she listed like every single sport out there. She goes, I have not exposed my children to these different sports. We don't know if they're actually good at them. And now they're going to lose their opportunity to find out they're actually Olympic material. <laughs> and she was completely oh joking, but it was hilarious. So, but you know, there are a lot of opportunities to find out, you know, what you're, what you potentially could be interested in. There's, you know, great extracurriculars. I think reading widely um, can also open your world. I have recommended to most of my friends this book that I read that was important to me called um, 
Getting Unstuck. And I think it's probably an old book now, but it was written by a guy who was a fellow at Harvard Business School. And there was a, a survey called the 100 Jobs Inventory where you check off like jobs that, that could be cool. That could, and they're like jobs that I actually wouldn't have thought of doing, like fireman um, and, other, and other things. And, and at the end, they kind of like, you know, they, you do an inventory of your, your interests and your abilities. And that was the first time that I, I rated myself doing that and it came out creative. And that was actually the first time I was like, oh, am I creative, right? And I, obviously I'd done this years and years ago, but that was kind of the first spark. And I, I so I, I don't, it, it could be that survey, it could be other surveys, but I, I actually find these job surveys and inventories of your interests and skill sets like to be really interesting because I think part of being immigrants, I felt like I didn't know what was available to me, what the job, what the market of potential jobs were out there. Um, and so like that was the information I craved and I went after. So, so, I, you know, I'll give another example. My kid, uh, my other son is, is a musician. He's a composer. And when he was, he's been a composer since he was one years old. And I was like, am I making this up? But because he would have musical preferences and, and it turned out he, he is actually a composer. And so he's now um, at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. He's been one of the youngest composers for years. But I remember asking my friends, like, what do you do with a composer kid? And they told me, you know, expose him widely um, and that there are actually many ways to become a composer. Like you could actually do the business of composing or you could, um, you know, you can score for a filmmaker or like, or you can make music for video games, right? Or you can do commercials. And so... And, and like, I think that opened up another universe too. like, like whatever it is that you're interested in, there are many, many ways to go about pursuing that. And it doesn't have to look like the, the paths you've seen. So if that path is not, you're not able to financially support yourself in one path, you can find another path and still be able to pursue what you love. Love it. Thank you so much for that advice, Abigail. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And it's part of the reason why we create a hustle network in the first place. Because mm-hmm. we want to show that there is a lot of different paths to success. You yeah. know, it doesn't have to be the traditional path. And, and and how I'd love to hear actually how you guys have came upon this this idea and like because you it seems to me that you've also found a calling for yourselves and how did you know and how did you come upon what you love? Yeah, um, I think for us is we love meeting people, we love sharing stories, we love bringing people together. Uh, more importantly, we saw a void in our community where. You know, the Asian diaspora is very historically divided. And on top of that, I feel like most of the Western society makes Asian history or Asian people highly invisible. So if we aren't sticking together, how how are we supposed to make a difference? You know? So when we realized that, we're like, okay, why is no one else doing something like this? And we decided to take that matter into our own hand and create Asian Hustle Network to show that we are cool. We are different and there's so many different ways to see success it's just that we haven't heard these options growing up and there's just so many Asians in our community and non-Asians as well allies of Asian community who want to share their stories and it's I think a lot of what we're trying to do is show to the world that we haven't been silent um, it's just that uh, before no one was really listening to our stories and and now we're demanding to be to be heard we're demanding to, for our voices to be heard right and we just have so much to share with the world it's incredible what you guys are building and Thank I'm really grateful and, and so honored to be able to watch it grow and grow Thank you, Abigail. We're so grateful for you to be a part of the community as well. So Abigail, where can our listeners find out more about Love Boat Taipei? When is the paperback coming out and when is the sequel coming out? And tell us where we can find it. Yeah, thank you. So I have a website, my name, abigailhingwen.com. The Love Boat Taipei is available everywhere. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, 
I was at Costco's for a bit, but, um, you know, I, you can, you can find all the links on my website. I have a newsletter that I'll send out, um, periodically. So you can sign up for the newsletter on my website. And then I'm also on social media, Abigail Hingwen on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, um, LinkedIn, <laughs> I think I'm everywhere. Um, so you can find me there as well, but I find that it's less reliable, but really the, the most direct way is through, um, the newsletter on my website. And then Love Boat Reunion, the sequel, comes out in January of next year. So actually at this stage, um, if people can pre-order, that would actually be enormously helpful because it starts is a signal to the publishers that there's there's interest from the community. So pre-ordering, again, on any of these links, is preferably independent bookstores, um, but Amazon and Barnes & Noble as well. Amazing. Thank you, Abigail. It was awesome just hearing your story today. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Abigail. We appreciate you. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much. This podcast was made with Descript. Descript is a groundbreaking new media tool that allows creators to edit audio and video like a text document and create a realistic clone of their own voice for seamless edits. Please check out our Patreon at Asian Hustle Network. We want Asian to continue being meaningful and give back to the Asian community. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to contribute to our feature, we hope you become a patron.